of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Let's pray together. Father, as we open the word of God this morning, we do pray that you'll use your word in each of our hearts and lives to your glory and to your honor as you conform us to the image of your Son. We thank you for the revealed Jesus and how that through your word we can grow in our knowledge, our understanding, and belief and faith in he who has redeemed us through his sacrifice. And Father, we thank you for this provision that you've made for our redemption. And Father, may we as well understand the tremendous responsibility and privilege it is to follow after Christ, to walk worthy of the vocation of the calling of God, to walk according as we have been called, according to this grace and this mercy and this eternal love that has been demonstrated, manifested, and now bestowed unto us who are followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we will look into the Word of God this morning, give us, Lord, hearts to understand and receive and ears to hear and eyes to behold and wonder at the beauty of the truth of the revealed Christ. And may you receive all the glory and all the honor, Lord, for all that you will accomplish. Help us, Lord, to be faithful as stewards of the gospel, that we waver not, that we stray not from the truth that is set before us. But may we be diligent, not only in the preaching of the word, but in living out the truth of the word of God in each of our lives. May this be true for all of us, I pray, as you would give us grace to do so. For it's in Christ's name we ask and pray these things. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Of course, we are moving forward this morning, as you see in our text from where we've been over the past many weeks, and over the past several weeks, we've spent our time together examining how that Jesus Christ is unique, and truly He is. We have seen just a brief review how that He is unique in His being in verse 15. He is the very image of the invisible God. Again, I want just to remind you of this, in the day in which it is believed that, as we've mentioned, that that uh, Gnosticism was forming in the early uh, in this uh, first century and early on as the churches were being established in mid century and later in the first century, as Gnosticism, as we believe it to be, was creeping into uh, what would be known as Gnosticism, was creeping into the church at Colossae. It was, of course, emphasizing that there is some uh, way in which God is mystically revealed Himself. We can mystically have a relationship with God through some mystic means. And, and the, the great tragedy of true, but the tragedy to help you to understand the significance of such an error is that if that were true, then there would be no necessity for the re- revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. Because if we could know God in some way other than Jesus Christ, then it would be pointless for Christ to have come, to have died, to have revealed the Father through his presence here on, on the earth. And so we see that this was a, a tragic thing. And hence Paul, of course, is emphasizing the, the, the deity and the preeminence and the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God has revealed himself, redeemed us through his Son, whom he manifested in the flesh on our behalf, that we might be born again, and therefore he received the glory. So Christ is unique in his being, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. He's unique in his authority, verse 16, we've seen. He created all things, all things by him he, in his status of course in his position he is preeminent 
He is unique in his purpose. Verse 20 through 22. For it's through the blood of his cross. He was sent to die. He was sent for the sake of becoming our atonement. God's sacrifice for us that we might have then a relationship with him. So verse 12, as we've seen over the past many weeks, has been a key verse to the, several, to the past several studies in Colossians. In verse 12, Paul stated, once again, verse 12 says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And I have shared with you, uh, means to qualify or to make sufficient. The verb qualify defined as having the qualities, accomplishments, etc., that fit a office and so we see again the uniqueness of christ in that he truly qualified us and that he is the only one who was able to we were disqualified by adam again we were ineligible because of our nature we could live up to the to the measure of god's holy and righteous standard and law and then also unqualified by our own actual sins because we are guilty ourselves committing sins And yet our Heavenly Father has qualified us by our Lord Jesus Christ, the only one qualified to do so. He is the only one in His unique qualities who is able to make us meet, able to qualify us. So as we continue in our study of this epistle this morning, we find that Paul speaks to the past. But I do want uh, you to follow Will in a couple of other epistles of Paul, actually the, the ones preceding this one, we'll see in both Ephesians and thing, uh, we, as you see, we're going to verse 23, Lord willing, this morning, and we probably will not be able to truly dig into all that is present in verse 23. I believe we'll probably need to come back and revisit that. Lord willing, next. The verse begins with this word, if. And so I want us to see that, but I don't want to to dig into that yet because I want you to notice and I want you to track with me if you're able, please. You might want to follow in in the Word of God that you have your copy with. You might want to follow so that you can see and, and understand what Paul is doing in each of these epistles as he deals with the past, the present, and the future of the reader, those to whom he has written. And so we see in Ephesians, for instance, when speaking of the past, present, and future, Paul does. Was pres- that is present tense. Then he the past. He first begins with the present to the church at Ephesus. Then he addresses their past. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, we read, And you were dead in trespasses. And again, notice, please, hath he quickened is in italics. It is not actually present because that's not the emphasis of what's being stated, but it is found in verse 5. Borrow that from verse 5, put in italics to give an understanding in verse 1, but the reality is verse 1 is not talking about the present state of these Ephesian believers. It's talking about their past. Notice, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past according to the course of this world, verse 3, among we all had our conversation in times past. And so here in 2 of Ephesians verses 1 through 3, he will get to verse 5 and talk about together with Christ, 
But yet in verse 1, he's not dealing with that. Really, he's dealing with the past. He's showing them their past. Having all that so that in the ages to come, that's the future, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So in Ephesians, we see Paul addresses the past, present, and future in this order. Present, past, and then future. Then in Philippians, as Paul speaks of himself in this regard, it's the same order as that which he did, does in his letter to the church at Colossae. He, said, he first addresses the past. Philippians 3.13, forgetting those things which are behind. Now, this is a personal testimony of Paul. Paul is talking personally of himself, not the reader. Now, it still is applicable to them without question, but yet now he's giving a personal things which are behind. Then in verse 13, he goes on to deal with the future and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Now, he says, this is before yet which I've attained or which, which, which I have, have lived in. And then he deals with the present in verse 14. I press toward the mark. That is present tense. So he deals here with the past, the future, and the present. Whereas in Ephesians, he dealt with the present, the past, and then the future. And then in Colossians, as we've read this morning, we see Paul begins with the past, as he did in Philippians. Colossians 1, 20. That were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. This is talking about their past. Then he says, he addresses their future, verse 22. He says, to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. This is yet to be. It's yet to happen in time or in actuality. And then he addresses the present. 123. Ye continue in the faith, grounded and set. There are other epistles in which Paul deals with the past, present, and the future in some form. But I wanted you to see Gla- or I wanted you to see Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians, the two preceding books, as they are listed canonically within our copies of Scripture. So you have Philippians, or, or um, Philippians, or Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and in each of these three epistles, Paul deals with past, present, and future specifically, spells it out for them. He deals, addresses this with intent. And so the question could be asked, why did Paul speak of time, the past, present, and future, in a different order within these epistles, even though, of course, two of them are in the same order we saw? Why does he do so? Does he not do it in the order, address it in the order of past, present, future, as you and I would usually reference time in such a manner? So why did he not do so? This in the natural order of past, present, and future. And there are reasons as to why Paul refers to the past, present, and future in a different order between the epistles of Colossians. And I just want to briefly give those to you before we get into the text. Paul begins Ephesians, if you recall, emphasizing the position believer provided in Jesus Christ. And it is for this reason he begins the present state of the Ephesians. He's not talking about their past. He doesn't begin there. He doesn't even talk about their future. Oh, it's going to be wonderful one day. No, he says, God has chosen you in Christ. He is predetermined. He is going to um, bring you into his family. He's going to uh, reveal to his truth and the knowledge of Christ. And, and of course, we understand he is emphasizing in the first chapter of the letter to the 
Ephesians that they have a position in Jesus Christ. This terminology is used multiple times throughout the book, as you recall, in Christ, in Him, in the Beloved. And it's it being all about who we are in, that we are in Christ. And then, of course, to chapter 3, which it begins, or chapter 4, 5, and 6 are the practical uh, is the practical division of the book of Ephesians. You remember that then it's about not you in Christ, but it's about Christ is in you and how that looks as it's being lived out as the position of who we are in Christ. Then it, it's all about Christ being in us and how that looks as we live in that truth. And so we understand that Paul would naturally, obviously, begin in the book of Ephesians his address of time with their present condition because this is the emphasis in chapter one that you have a a position in christ within the verses in which paul references present and future he does so emphasizing his personal testimony as i mentioned and showed you and responsibility that he bore to forsake all things in pursuit of knowing jesus christ and hence we see that he deals with that by past things which are behind i've moved beyond that he says, I'm reaching forth to that which is before. There is still something before me, but yet I am living in the present in such a manner. So he is setting that example, if you will, saying, this is what I must do. I must not live in yesterday, and I must forget all those things I counted gain and counted as being beneficial or valuable to me. He says, all that which I once considered to be my righteousness, that's forgotten. It's be, I'm past that. It's in my past. He says, I'm looking forward to Christ. He says, but because of that, I am now living in such a manner that it's very clear that I am not resting past concerning the things I once counted as my righteousness. I'm not depending on those anymore, but not, that's not all there is to it. He says, also, I am totally pursuing after Christ, looking to him who is my righteousness. He says, then, that obviously has changed the way that I live my life today. And then we see as well, Paul writes to the past, present, and future in the same order, an effort to stress the responsibility of the church, just as he had personal responsibility to continue in their pursuit of knowing Jesus. Because as he says in Philippians, this is what I must do, forget all that I once counted as righteousness and look to Christ who is my righteousness, which then gives me the responsibility to daily submit to the truth of the lordship of christ as my righteousness as i live so as paul personally did that in philippians he has the same showing the church the same truth that they must do as he has expressed to the philippian church that he is doing so with that understanding let's look at verse 21 and see what paul be the past of these colossian believers verse 21 and were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now Paul speaks to their present condition in this verse. Now hath he reconciled. However, he first contrasts this with the that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. So again, he begins with their past, and he is saying to them, this is what you were, this is where you were, this is how you were. And Paul states in the past that these believers, or he says sometime, or formerly, formerly, or alienated, and estranged from God, in a 
former state. So in not only that they were alienated from God, but then he explains that they were enemies of God in their disposition, that is in their thoughts and attitude, by their wicked works and evil deeds. So not only were these Colossian believers strange from God, but he declares that they were the very enemies of God. Now this is a that is common to all men prior to regeneration. The hearts only are they indifferent towards God, but all men apart from Christ are declared to be the very enemies of God. Furthermore, both attitudes and actions of the unregenerate man reveal the hatred for all that is righteous and holy. Men Hear me, please, because we can speak of being unregenerate, and that is true. But we must never forget that Scripture spells this out for us clearly, especially in Romans 1. We see that, how that this is true of man and the destructive, self-destructive nature of man. If God does not divinely intervene within a man's life, he will self-destruct. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And that being said, it, let, me, let me give you an analogy of that quickly before I move on. It's like if you would, if there were a, a piece of fruit that you had. And there's a wrong spot in that fruit. Just let that fruit sit there. And you know what's going to happen? It's going to completely rot away. But if you were to take that and cut that out and preserve that, it's not going to decay at the same rate or in the same manner as it would if you just let it to itself. Listen, if God does not divinely intervene in the sinner's, the unregenerate man's life, he will just decay and self-destruct. Inevitably, it's going to happen without question. You know what God does? Now, our flesh is still going to die. We're not talking about it. We're talking about the spirit. We're talking about the soul of man, the spirit, the spirit of man. It means the Holy Spirit as believers, that we have spiritual life. That. And he roots out that heart of unbelief. He cuts that out. And he gives us a heart of belief that is not going to just run away. But it's that which is renewed. It's the very mind of Christ as the scriptures speak. And so we see that man, remember this truth, that men being indifferent towards God are also the enemies of God. And also we must recognize that men are not only unregenerate, but that men are degenerate. Regenerate, we are degenerate. that God has provided our Lord Jesus. As we previously read from Ephesians, Paul used similar language, yet with more detail in the book of Ephesians when speaking of their past. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 for a, a moment and verse 1, and we'll read 1, 2, and 3. And you, and I know it says, who were dead in sin, trespasses and sins, wherein in time past, according to the prince of the power of the the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There it is, that rotten core. We were by nature, this was our nature, under the very wrath of God, the children of wrath. Now we know the next verse. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, what are the next two words? But God, there's that intervention. But God, if he does not intervene, then this is what we are. 
Now, in the case of the Ephesian believers, what they were still in that same condition in the day in which Paul wrote this letter. And there are many today within that same condition. So apart from God intervening, this is what we are. Paul's Paul then addressed the future. Now, notice, again, he's dealt with their past, but instead of going to the present, he then moves forward to the future and skips the present for a moment. He says, this is what you were, again, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Then he says, verse 21, yet now hath he reconciled, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now look, don't disconnect verse 21 and, or, or verses uh, 21 and 22 here. If you notice, it says, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh. That's a continued statement there. He's saying he's reconciled us. How? In the body of his flesh. That's a continued thought. And he says, through death, present you holy and unblameable and in his sight. This is their future. And, and look at this for a moment. Let's stop for a second. Do not lose focus or sight of what is being stated here. Look at their past. And this is significant. Paul begins with their past. One more time, let's read it. And you. This was your past. You were alienated. You were alienated. In your mind, in your heart, in your inner being, you were a very enemy to God. And it demonstrated itself this enmity that existed demonstrated itself by your actions, by your wicked works. Your wicked works are the evidence of enmity that existed within you. So, dealing both here with the ad- attitude and the actions of these believers as it had once been. This was your attitude towards God. You were alienated, you were strangers. And you were enemies of God. The demonstration result of the attitude towards God. So what we see here in the verse 21, he goes on to say, Yet now hath he reconciled. So this was what you are. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy. Look at what he says. God has reconciled you. And we're going to look at what that means in a moment again. But he's done so through the body of his flesh in death or through death for what purpose? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. This is talking about future. This is talking about what's yet to actually be realized. And here's what I say here. If you understand the pre- you have to pause for a moment and exclaim, what a hope. What confidence. This is what I was now being reconciled by God. And this is the reason he reconciled me is that he might present us holy in his sight. I, let, me, let me say this before we even get into this. Uh, I would venture to say That there's not one of us in here who would actually view ourselves by our everyday experience as holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. And you know why I say that? Because we're not. 
But it's not about how we view ourselves. It's about God is viewing us. And he says, I have done this that I might present you to myself through the sacrifice of my son. I will, you will be presented as that which is without blame, unreprovable, and holy in his sight. I want to digress for just a moment. It's often been said, and you've heard me say this many times, people today have this idea, and you hear this stated often, where people say, well, you just need to forgive yourself. You just need to love yourself. Listen, it doesn't matter really if you forgive yourself or love yourself. What matters is that you have been forgiven by God and you're loved of God. That's what's important. And when it talks about being holy, unblameable, unreprovable, in his sight, this isn't about even how you view yourself. Look at the confidence and the hope that is present here. Because we've been reconciled, now remember, I told you ago, Paul's already stated in Philippians, he said, hey, I forget those things which are behind, looking forward to that which is before, but then that transformed the way he lived his present life. So, don't get too far ahead of yourself here, but recognize with me that this is what we were alienated as the Colossian believers. We were alienated enemies within our minds, which demonstrated itself through everything that was our wicked works our attitudes dictated our actions before god we were not submitted to him not loving him not reverencing him not worshiping him but now he says he's reconciled us to this purpose we might be holy he presents us holy unreprovable in his sight this is our future look what a future what a future if you've been reconciled that is true what a future oh man can't look at my past forget the past what a few because of god's work so what is it to be holy to be holy is to be sanctified or to be set apart to be unblameable is to be without blemish and to be unre- is to be blameless to be above reproach to know that it is the same Lord who has reconciled us, which is to say he has removed the hostility which once existed between himself and us. He has so promised to perfect this work of redemption. Paul further expounded upon this truth in his letter to the church at Ephesus again. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us on the adoption of children. Ephesians 5, 25-27, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. God delivered these Colossian believers from their past that he might ensure their future with him in holiness and righteousness. Have already been. De- there will be a day which we will stand before the Lord, before the Heavenly Father, literally blameless and unreproved, holy sight, be the perfect work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
The only way in which one of us who've been disqualified and are unqualified can become sanctified, without blemish and above reproach, holy unto the Lord, is that the unique Christ transform our past that he might ensure our eternal future. Paul concludes this summary of the past, present, and future Colossian believers with charging them concerning their responsibility in the present. Look at verse 23. And again, we will not get all completely into this this morning, but just briefly for a moment, and then we will get further into this truth. But he says, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, the confidence of the gospel, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Well, there's much more to explore within this one verse than we have time to delve into this morning, as I've expressed many times, concerning the details of the present responsibility of the Colossian believers. I believe it's important to begin to... ...address the past condition and future promise of God for these believers. Some view this verse as though it is a conditional statement that is a necessity for someone to be reconciled. In other words, some may believe this statement to be one that is stating that they obtain reconciliation and they then obtain a promise of glorification because of the in Jesus Christ. Now, I... We've gone through Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, past, present, future, and the order in which Paul lists it, even in light of what Paul is stating in verse 20. I told you in verse 21, where he deals with their past. If you recall with me, he speaks about they were at one time former and in it. How? In their mind by wicked works let me ask you something is is it the wicked works that made them alienated is it the wicked works that from which those works came that condemned them is it not they were alienated strangers and enemies of god in their mind which resulted and demonstrated and manifested in by their wicked works. Here you find. Paul is saying, verse 23, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So again, while some may view this as a conditional statement, meaning that if is stating that it's through one's own faithfulness that they obtain reconciliation and a promise of eternal glorification because of the redemption is in Jesus Christ. But yet it's through faithful, therefore God provided Jesus. And if we remain faithful, then we will receive the promise of glorification and reconciliation. However, to hold such a belief is to neglect and dismiss the entire efficiency and faithfulness of both perform and perfect his work of redemption. So the if in verse 23 is not a condition, but it is it's of one who has been reconciled by God. Within this passage, Paul uses the past of the Colossian believers that God has reconciled them 
Jesus will perfect his work of redemption by presenting those he has reconciled holy, blameless, unreprovable. To emphasize, he does that to emphasize their responsibility main in the truth that has been given to them and obviously those who are reconciled to remain of God's work within their lives. By providing this contrast between those who were once and are now made to, to be, Paul reminds the Colossian believers of the great debt they owed to the one who had reconciled and redeemed them. Colossians 1.21 again, look with me. And you that were sometime alienated enemies in your mind works, yet now hath he reconciled. Now Paul has already really addressed this in the previous verses of this chapter. Go back to verse 9 with me, please, and let's read 9, 10, and 11 together and see if you can make this connection. For this calls we also, Paul writes, since the day we to pray for you and to desire that ye be, might be filled with the knowledge of his that ye may walk or might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing being all might according to his glorious power unto all patience suffering with joyfulness how we're going to make or how is it they were going to walk worthy of the Lord? Well, it's because the faith was present, but according to the might of the Spirit of God who dwelled within them that they could be pleasing unto the Lord and walk in manner according to the call of God and the work of God. So consider what God has done in the past for these believers at Colossae. He had reconciled them, which is to say he had removed the hostility that existed, but and his promise them for the future he would perfect the work which he had begun it would only stand to reason that such a a present reality and responsibility and desire for these believers to continue in the truth of this work which god had done why is it the wicked want to remain wicked because they are wicked why would it be one would want to pursue after righteousness and be rooted and grounded in truth. Because God transplanted him from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, as Paul has already spoken of in this. Jesus Christ alone, that we have a past that has been transformed. Who reconciled us? God. How? By Jesus Christ. Does he not teach us that? Do we reckon we remove the enmity between us and God? No, God removes the enmity. How do we know we have a, a future? Because, you know, we're, we do our best to do what we can do. No, God has promised this. He will perform this work. And we're going to look at verses that deal with this in just a moment in closing. So then how is it that we continue in the faith? By our efforts? No. We only continue in the faith because we're of the faith. We only grow in the truth because we've been, truth has been implanted within us. We only seek and pursue righteousness because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed unto us. This is the result past that's been recognized. It's the result of knowing and the confidence, the hope of this future that he will perfect this work. Hence, we are be to commit ourselves in pursuit of of righteousness and holiness and submitting to him, resting in he who is able to do that which we cannot do. Philippians 2, 
12 and 13. Know what Paul says. He talks about in the, his absence, that even more so now, may, that he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Next explains it, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So it's upon Jesus Christ alone that we have a path that has been transformed, a future that is secure, and a present foundation and desire to continue. 5, 23 and 24, Paul wrote, And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, Say holy, holy not as in H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. He completely set you, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. Then look at verse 24. Faith is he. So, faithful is he that calls you, also will do it. <laughs> Faithful is he that calls you also will do it. Oh, I pray you remain blameless, but you know what? Faithful is he that calls, that calls you who's going to do this. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God. Amen. Now unto Unto you that do well not to fall. No, unto him that is able to keep you from falling. To present you faultless for the present. Please hear me. You are, if you believe for one second that there's never been able to do, including after salvation, to present yourself faultless and blameless and holy and unreprovable. The only way you are holy, unbelievable, unreprovable, and faultless is because you are in Jesus Christ, and it's God who's done that work, not you. But that affects how we live now. That's the point. We're not the same. If the enmity has been removed, if the hostility has been removed, guess what? I no longer act like an enemy of God. Why? Because I am not an enemy of God. That's the reason why. It's not I try to act like an enemy because, you know, I, I don't want people to think that. No, I'm not an enemy of God, hence I don't act like an enemy of God. Now, that does not mean I do not sin. It does not mean I do not fail. But it means that despite, and here's the beauty of it, despite my sin and despite my failure, unreprovable without blemish, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. It has to do with what he has done. But listen, having been delivered from this past, with the promise of this future, because I've been delivered from this past, oh, it sure does change my desire in the present and how my life is lived. Remember, we never do right to become righteous. But we seek and pursue righteousness because we have been declared and made righteous in Jesus Christ. If is not a condition for our reconciliation, and if is not the condition to receive the promise of a certain future with the Lord, but rather the if is the evidence of a life resting and trusting in the preeminent and faithful Christ, who is all-sufficient in and of himself to complete that which he has begun. Hebrews 12, 2, and I'm finished. Looking 
unto Jesus, the author. He's the author, he's the beginner of faith. And the finisher of faith. It was set before the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you think for one moment that he would be set down at the right hand of the throne of God if there were one possibility, one iota of a chance that he was not able to perfect that work which he began? It's done. Remember Jesus saying that on the cross? Do you recall that? It is finished. All that was required for redemption the atonement being made for us was complete. It is He who is faithful. I will just say this. If you're resting in your faithfulness, then you are hopeless. You know why? I'm going to tell you something that's going to encourage your heart this morning, give you a word of encouragement, and you're going to smile walking out of here and say, boy, it's been good to go to church today. You're not faithful. I'm not faithful. I desire to be faithful. Guess what? I fell in my faithfulness, and you fell in your faithfulness. But Christ has never failed in faithfulness. We rest and trust and hope in him. But that past from which I've been delivered, the future to which I've been promised, knowing that he will perfect this work, sure does change my view of the present. In the present. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we